reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times, articles, or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. This message is brought to you by Kevin Weeb. I want to begin this morning with a story from Guidepost Magazine that was written by Corey Connors. She writes, One Sunday afternoon, our family gathered around our big oak table for dinner. Soon my daughter Kate's laughter rose above the talk. Graham, you're silly, she said. We all turned to see my mom delicately lifting to her mouth a small strand of peas on the blade of her knife. All but one pea made it, and everyone clapped. Then mom told us the story behind her unorthodox technique. This was grandma's story. When I was little, we didn't have much. It was the Great Depression. But we did have a table full of food because my father grew wonderful vegetables. Lots of hobos who had jumped from the train wandered onto our property looking for a meal. More often than not, an extra seat was pulled up to our dinner table. One summer afternoon, I was sweeping the kitchen floor when my father's voice came through the screen door. Lizzie, set another plate. We have company tonight. Our guest paused in the doorway and dipped his head in a gesture of gratitude. Looks like he doesn't speak much English, Dad said, but he's hungry like we are. His name is Henry. When dinner was ready, Henry stood until we were all seated, then gently perched on the edge of his chair, his head bowed and his hat in his lap. The blessing was said, and dishes were passed from hand to hand. We all waited, as was proper, for our guest to take the first bite. Henry must have been so hungry he didn't notice us watching him as he grabbed his knife. Carefully, he slid the blade into the pile of peas before him, and then lifted a quivering row to his mouth without spilling a single pea. He was eating with his knife. I looked at my sister May, and we covered our mouths to muffle our snickers. Henry took another knifeful and then another. My father, taking note of the glances we were exchanging, firmly set down his fork. He looked me in the eye, then he took his knife and thrust it into the peas on his plate. Most of them fell off as he attempted to lift them to his mouth, but he continued until all of his peas were gone. Dad never did use his fork that evening because Henry didn't. It was one of my father's silent lessons in acceptance. He understood the need for this man to maintain his dignity, to feel comfortable in a strange place with people with different customs. Even at my young age, I understood the greatness of my father's simple act of brotherhood. Mom paused, looked at her grandchildren, and winked as she plowed her knife into a mountain of peas. What a lovely story. To these little girls, it was strange how this guest was eating his food, but their father wanted to teach them a lesson about accepting others who were different. Sometimes, like the little girls in the story, the way we look at others and judge them reveals much more about ourselves than it does about the people that we are judging and snickering at. We're beginning a new series today called The Scandal of Christmas. I've been waiting a few years for this series, actually. Last year, in Advent, we started the Come and See series with the EMC, where they invited us to join with them in a sermon series from Advent to Pentecost. 
And this was going to be our series for last year that we had planned the year before. So instead, we bumped it up to this year. So it's been a few years that we have been waiting, that I have been waiting, to get to this very series, The Scandal of Christmas. We typically think of Christmas as nostalgic. Um, The last few years, when I go out for coffee with my daughter or go for a drive, she will talk to me about the warm, fuzzy feelings she gets around Christmas time. Maybe the smells of Christmas, of um, peppermint maybe, or um, candy canes, or something of that sort. And she'll talk about all the wonderful things about Christmas. But when we think of the Christmas story even, we often think of these really this really beautiful kind of scene of baby Jesus and the nativity. But we don't often think of the scandal. And as we're going to see, there is scandal after scandal after scandal in the Christmas story. So we're going to be walking through these scandals of Christmas. This first one being called the pregnant unwed mother. We are looking at Mary a young woman, pregnant, unmarried. How do we as Christians usually treat those who are not married and become pregnant? I imagine it's not that much different, perhaps, than it was for people of Mary's day. Although there, there was a bit of a difference. In Mary's day, Um, being a pregnant, unwed mother could come with a death sentence. There was some pretty significant uh, laws at play for that sort of thing. The passage we're going to start with today is Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at um, what is commonly referred to as the Annunciation. This is a story where the angel comes to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. That's as far as we'll read in this passage in Luke. This is quite something. Mary's response to all of this, 
Simply, I am the Lord's servant. Well, first she asks the question, how can this be? And the angel says, God's power will come upon you. It, it will happen. God's word will not fail. And she responds, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. God's will be done. I'm his servant. <laughs> I don't think Mary was ignorant of what was about to happen. She knew she wasn't married, obviously. She would have known very well the society that she's in. Usually, the, the consequences of these kinds of things will flash into a person's mind immediately. Yet she doesn't object. She doesn't say, but God, what about this? But God, what about that? But what about the other thing? That's actually quite amazing here. Um, when, when we see other people uh, being called into great acts of service, um, like Moses, for instance, on the mountain in the book of Exodus, God is calling him to go to his people to set them free to talk to Pharaoh. But God, I have trouble with speaking. But God, who am I to tell them sent me? But God, always making excuses. But not Mary. Not Mary, no. I am the Lord's servant, she says. Quite something. Despite the scandal that was about to happen for her. God came to earth in the form of a baby given to an unwed mother. This is scandalous enough in our time. This was even more scandalous back then. Even more. This God baby, this Jesus, God in the flesh, was not given to a king or a queen, not even to a very noble married couple of some royalty, not to someone who didn't have any other kids like Elizabeth and her husband. No, instead of that, God intentionally chose to come to earth in a way that created a scandal for Mary. God did this, at least in part, to display His power by causing Mary, who was a virgin, to conceive a child. That's at least part of it. There's a miracle at work here. The miracle of a virgin conceiving a child. That's at least one piece of this story. And like a lot of things, there's more than one one piece to it. There's, There's a lot going on. But I can't help but think that it also revealed the self righteousness of those around Mary. God coming to earth in this way almost cost Mary her relationship with Joseph. Mary saying yes to God, this happening to Mary, almost cost her her engagement. For many, um, if this would happen to them, it would mean that they, they could potentially be single forever. And a woman in that day and age being single forever meant that they would have no one to care for them. 
that once their mother and father died, that they would be poor and in poverty for the rest of their lives if they had this kind of scandal happen to them. They were unmarriable. And so this respectable man, Joseph, she had her life set. Well, sort of. Joseph wasn't rich by any stretch. But she would be fed. She would be cared for by a man who at least had some manner of integrity. And that, you know, would be enough for Mary. But because of this, she nearly lost him and would have had God not intervened. Let's take a look at the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. I'm just going to pause here for a second because Joseph would have had the right to drag her into the open square and to have her stoned to death. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to save her life. He wanted her to maintain, you know, well, her life, but also some dignity. So he decided to break off the engagement quietly. The decision was made and was, was going to follow through, presumably. Verse 20, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet, Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. I just love how Joseph's character is portrayed here. God and the writer of Matthew working with God in, in writing the gospel account here. They don't portray Joseph badly, right? They, they talk about his righteousness, his integrity. It says he was a righteous man. But he must have thought that Mary had not been faithful to him but even still was going to break up with her quietly when the law of the time would have given Joseph the right to have her put to death. Yet God did not want to leave Mary alone, so he sent an angel to Joseph. So what happens next? Joseph just does what God told him to, just like Mary did. Mary just says, okay, and so does Joseph. So God made this incredible scandal for Mary. 
one that could have cost her her life, something that almost cost her her engagement to Joseph, that would have left her in even worse poverty than that they already experienced. And the fact then that Joseph stays means that God roped Joseph into the scandal as well. So the fact that Joseph stayed with Mary meant that now the whole town was going to be thinking that the baby belonged to Joseph. Joseph must have stayed because the baby was his, right? So now everyone would think that Mary and Joseph had not waited until they were married to have children. Oh, and so the gossip flies and the rumors spread. And not only Mary is involved in the scandal, now Joseph too. Oh my goodness. What was God thinking? But Mary submits to the Lord in being willing to carry Jesus in her womb. Joseph submits to the Lord by taking Mary as his wife and accepting Jesus as his child to raise. They both accept the public scandal that all of this brings to them. Rumors, gossip, lies, scandal. But they just accept it and serve the Lord. And they know what they did was right. This whole story got me thinking about an interesting question. If Jesus was born out of wedlock, if Jesus was born out of wedlock, how do you think he sees other children born in those circumstances? You know, there are times when in in very religious communities, especially strictly conservative religious communities, when a child is born out of wedlock, the parents of that child view that child as a representation of their shame. And for the rest of that child's life, the parents look at that child and all they can see is their shame. How do you think the child feels about that? They see that look in their parents' eyes every time their parents look at them. Is that fair to the child? Do you think that's how Jesus would look at that child? If Jesus was born out of wedlock, how do you think he sees other children born in those circumstances? I don't think that's how he would see them. Because those children born in those circumstances had no choice in the matter. It's certainly not their fault. When I was in high school, as, as you know, a lot of people probably experienced, they had, I had friends that found out they were going to have a baby. And most of you probably had similar situations happen with friends around you. Now, you have to remember a few things about me. I was raised in a home where my mother reminded us all the time about how precious every single human life was. She would write letters to the editor sometimes in our local newspapers on the topic of abortion, pleading with people not to dehumanize the unborn as something other than human. We also grew up in a home where we were friends with a lot of people who had gone through a lot of difficult things and people who had felt like the world had turned its back on them. And my parents would take people in who had nowhere else to go. And so this was the kind of context that I grew up in. And so when my friends told me that they were going to have a baby, the very first thing 
I said to them was a simple congratulations. What else would I say? They were just shocked. They said it was the first time someone had said something nice to them about the pregnancy. They asked me, wasn't I going to point out that they weren't married and that they had been living in sin? Wasn't I going to remind them that they were teenagers and not very well equipped to deal with parenting a baby? And I just thought, how tragic. Here they are, scared, confused, filled with shame, not knowing what their future looks like, and everyone in their life, even the Christians, are just judging them instead of being there for them. Everyone is thinking about that baby in their womb as a burden and as a representation of shame. And so after they asked me all of these questions, I said something, something to the fact of, you already know about right and wrong. And no matter how your child comes into this world, that baby is made in God's image and is to be celebrated. And that's how I believe Jesus would view children born in those circumstances. And if we are people that are truly pro-life, I believe that's how we should view every child made in the image of God, every life made in the image of God. Something this story shows us is that we serve a God who is much more comfortable with breaking our social rules than we are. You ever think about that? We serve a God who's much more comfortable breaking our social rules than we are. Do you remember how Jesus lived? He spent a great deal of his time in ministry with people that the rest of the religious community would avoid. He feasted with felons. He ate with the outcasts. He sat with sinners and he prayed among the prostitutes. Praying for them and with them and serving the sinners that the religious community would avoid. Luke 7, 31 to 35 says this. To what can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked. How can I describe them? They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. You see, Jesus spent his time with those who were down and out, and they mocked him for it. They spread rumors about him for it, too. But as we are talking about this, we should remember two things. I want to give you two reminders as we're talking about the rules that Jesus broke and the rules, the social rules that God broke in all of these scandals. One is that talking about breaking social rules is different than talking about sin. 
Jesus was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 reminds us that he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. Breaking social rules is a very different thing than talking about sin. These scandals that that God um, involved Mary and Joseph in was not a scandal of, of sin, right? The scandal was about the social rules of the day. And the scandal was, in fact, the, that of what the community perceived to be the case that actually was not the case. And their response to Mary and Joseph out of sheer ignorance and judgment and condemnation, that was undeserved. The second thing we should remember is that when we are condemning others, we are in fact sinning. When we are standing there condemning others, we are in fact sinning. Yes, we should know what right and wrong is. And yes, the Bible tells us to judge for ourselves about all kinds of matters. But there is a big difference between seeing someone do something wrong and then inviting them into a grace-filled relationship with Jesus on the one hand, and then just outright condemning them on the other hand. Those are two very, very different things. Jesus came to earth and literally died to bring all of us salvation. So who are we to stand there and think that anyone is too sinful or too bad or too far gone or too whatever to be of any use to God? We may be able to judge whether certain actions are just or unjust or right or wrong. And we may be able to invite others to repentance and invite them into a new way of living or, or a better way that reflects the right and just and true way of living that Jesus wants for our lives. But John 3.17 reminds us that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So why are so many of us Christians out there so full of condemnation when the way of Jesus is so full of grace and truth. We will not get anywhere when we puff ourselves up with self-righteousness. Jesus tells this story when he was teaching. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. Uh, he's, He's setting this up well. So the people who were listening, it says they were already confident in their own righteousness. He's telling this to a bunch of the the church people of the church people, you know. The the best among them, those who thought that they had ticked all the boxes and, and they had it all together. So he sets up this story. There was a Pharisee and a despised tax collector. And they're like, okay, all right. We like the Pharisee. Tax collector, not so much. (laughs) And then Jesus says this. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says this, 
I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I want to come back to Mary. To the scandalous story of a young woman becoming a pregnant, unwed mother. Do you remember what the angel had told her? She had found favor with God. We tend to think that if we are favored by God, then we will get an easy life full of riches. You know, that that sounds about right, you know. That That sounds like it would make sense. If you're God's favorite, then he's going to pour out all the blessings, right? And the blessings have got to mean money, power, fame, land, one would think. That might be what we would tend to think. But that's not actually what Mary received, not in an earthly sense. But for Mary, the consequences of finding favor with God at least at first, was not easy at all. And yet she was given the greatest honor that any human could ever think to ask for, to be the mother of God when he came to earth as a baby, to care for him and to raise him. What greater honor could there be? What richer time on earth could there be than God in the flesh as a baby to hold him in your arms day after day. It's a riches that goes beyond any wealth this world could offer. Jesus always had a soft spot for his mother. And I I love seeing that in the scriptures. Did you ever notice that? Do you remember some of the stories? There was the the story of the wedding at Cana where Jesus does his first miracle. You know, they were running out of wine at this wedding and Jesus' mother, Mary, um, comes to Jesus and and brings the servants over and, and tells Jesus about this problem that they're running out of wine. And Jesus is like, what do you want me to do about it? My time has not yet come. And Jesus tells her no, and then Mary says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. <laughs> like she, she knows who Jesus is, that he can fix their problem. And even after he, he says no, Mary just kind of believes that Jesus is going to take care of it, and she, she seems to walk away, and Jesus, all right. And then, then he does, he fixes the problem. Whatever goes on in between there, maybe God the Father says, all right, I'm, it's Mary. Go ahead, Jesus. You can, you can take care of this one. And so he does it. There's something in that interaction with Jesus and Mary where it's just, there's something in their relationship that's so special. Or even as Jesus is dying on the cross in one of those most powerful moments in both the history of humanity, but also the the pinnacle of this moment in all of Scripture, that from 
the beginning to the end, the climax of the story of the Bible and the story of humanity. And as Jesus is hanging there in the most important, well, the resurrection is actually the most important moment, but it all kind of comes to the cross and Jesus is hanging there. And in the middle of this, as he's dying, Jesus' mother is there and his disciple John. And even as he's dying, He's ensuring that his mother is going to be looked after after he's gone. He says, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. And what he's doing is he's saying that from now on, John, it is your responsibility to care for her as you would your own mother. And John was the only disciple of all of the 12 disciples who was not executed for his faith. The only one. Jesus ensured that his mother would have someone to look after her. Even as he was dying, he had this soft spot for his mother, this beautiful relationship between Jesus and Mary. And You know, when the scriptures talk about honor your father and, and mother... There's a huge piece of that in, in the scriptures that if you dive into the theology of that, that it, a huge part of that is, is ensuring that they're looked after, their, their, their well-being is taken care of as, as they age. And so Jesus is even being obedient to the scriptures that he himself authored, you know, even as he's dying on the cross to, to accomplish salvation on a cosmic scale for all of us. And even there, Jesus is concerned with, his, with the well-being of his mother. So while the rest of the world judged Mary for being a pregnant, unwed mother, while everyone else saw only the scandal, God looked at her and said, I am especially fond of Mary. She has my favor. Out of any human being in the whole world, I choose her to be the mother of Jesus. I believe God invites us to see the world through his eyes. To a new way of seeing, a new way of being. To not just get wrapped up in the latest whiff of gossip all the time the latest sensational story, but to see the world through God's eyes. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, we're told in Romans 12, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. What is really fascinating is that God wants us to become new people by changing the way we think and the way we look at the world. But the very next instruction is connected back to this idea of thinking too highly of ourselves. Just like the self-righteous Pharisee judging the tax collectors or like anyone who looked at Mary judging her as a scandalous sinner, thinking they knew better, even when that wasn't the case at all. 
So God invites us all to look at who we really are, a sinner in need of God's grace, which is something we can only receive through our faith in Jesus Christ. And this brings me to the real scandal of Christmas. The real scandal of Christmas is that God left heaven to come to a broken earth for you and for me. We will come back to this point again and again this Christmas season. That the real scandal of Christmas is that God left heaven to come to a broken earth for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we think about Mary, as we think about the scandal that she faced being a pregnant, unwed mother, as we think about her response and how she just said, may it be to me as you have said, submitting wholeheartedly to the will of God despite everything that she faced. And Joseph, who after hearing from the Lord that this was his doing, he also submitted to the Lord in this. My hope and my prayer is that as we see others in this world that may be living out their own scandals, that we might be a little less judgmental, a little more curious, and a whole lot more filled with the grace of God as we walk in this world. Let's pray.